Welcome back to the Humbly Spoken Podcast. My name is Kinsley Holland, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm so pumped that you're listening today, and I'm really excited that this is Season 2, Episode 1. Jacob Haywood is going to be speaking on the podcast today, and before he starts, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction. So through multiple and mutual acquaintances, I've known of Jacob for a good portion of my life. A student pastor at a church in Tennessee, a teacher at a Christian school, a seminary student, a dad to two kids, and a husband to Sarah are just a few things that describe who Jacob is. Jacob has taken a great interest in the realm of Christian apologetics, and his main focus for his seminary studies is the problem of evil. Apologetics, simply defined from its Greek origin, is the discipline of defending religious doctrine through systematic argumentation and discourse. Jacob has a website called Reason for Hope Ministries, and I'm going to link that website in the show notes that I will be sending out later to those of you on my email list. You can check out a five-session apologetics class and many other resources on his website. So I actually took this mini class in 2020, and it grew me personally, so this is why I wanted to ask Jacob to be on my podcast, among other things. As I've taken a long sabbatical from podcasting, Jacob was gracious to run this first episode of season two, and I'm so thankful that he is. I hope you'll sit down with a notebook and a pen or pay particular attention to this episode as to glean wisdom from Jacob's teaching. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so grateful that you have asked me to be on the podcast. Uh, My name is Jacob Haywood. I am a student pastor. I am a PhD student in Christian apologetics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I have taught apologetics in a Christian school setting for several years to 11th graders. Um, I, I'm passionate about the topic and just grateful you have asked me to to share a little about what it is and maybe some of the, the highlights, some of the main points and arguments within it. So apologetics, a, a lot of people maybe don't recognize the word or think it sounds like uh, apology or you need to apologize for something. And that's not what it is. Um, it, it really comes from a Greek word, apologia, uh, which means defense. And so maybe think of a, a courtroom setting when you give a defense for something. And it can be found in the Bible in First Peter 3.15. Um, this is kind of really the, the best apologetics passage that tells us we need to practice. And and do apologetics. In First Peter 3.15, it says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. There's that word apologia, that apologetic, to make an apologetic, a defense, a reason, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So apologetics is given a reason, a, a defense for the hope that is within you. Now, where is the hope within you? It's, um, it's not within yourself. Um, you know how easy uh, you falter and your, your emotions betray you and, and you can't even rely on how you feel and think. And So it, it's not within ourself. Where, where does our hope lie? Well, as a Christian, 
It lies in a person and an event, I like to say. Um, it, it lies in Jesus and the resurrection. That Jesus is who he said he was. He is God in the flesh. He did what he said he would do. He died for our sins, the once for all atoning sacrifice for all who would believe. I mean, he rose from the dead to, to seal that, to um, give us life forevermore. And um, that's where our hope lies. Um, I think some of the best apologetics you see in the Bible, it's done by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. And if you read those, you see the content of his message. He's reasoning and rationalizing with different sets of people, some Greeks, some Jews. But the content is always the same. He, it always boils down to Jesus and the resurrection. And, and that's where our hope lies. And so um, doing apologetics is giving a reason um, that, that Jesus is who he said he is, that our, our faith is not useless. We're not still in our sins, as 1 Corinthians 15 would say, if the resurrection didn't happen, um, our faith is useless. We're still in our sins. But Christ did indeed rise from the dead. And so we have hope. Um, and so we need to give reason for that. We need to be able to explain that to people. We need to be able to share that with people. So I think the purpose, main purpose for apologetics is evangelism. It's to tell others, you need Jesus. He died for you, and, and here's why we know that is true. Now, apologetics can seem daunting because there's so much information. There's so many areas to look at, and people may feel like they're ill-equipped, even if they've studied it. And um, it certainly can feel like that sometimes. But sometimes the greatest apologetic you can give is, is a changed life is your own personal testimony, your own story of how Jesus has has rescued and redeemed you and what he's done for you. And so given a reason, a defense uh, for the, the hope that is within us, it isn't just intellectual in nature all the time. Uh, it can be experiential as well. It's a powerful apologetic. And so, you know, there's really three reasons people don't believe in God. There are emotional reasons. There's volitional or willful reasons and there's intellectual reasons so people don't believe in god for emotional reasons like something bad has happened to them and and so i i'm angry with how how dare if god exists how dare he do this i don't want to believe in a god like that that would be an emotional uh, response to not believing in god um there's volitional reasons or willful saying, I don't want to believe in a God who would dictate that I live such and such way of life, uh, betray my own feelings, or um, you see a lot, a lot of that in our, our culture now. It doesn't mean God doesn't exist, but I don't want to believe in, in that God. So you have emotional, you have volitional reasons people don't believe in God, and then you have intellectual reasons. Now, um, I really think most of people's Rejection of God is emotional or willful, um, but they mask it in intellectual objections. But we, we always need to get back to the intellectual truth of the matter. So if someone has an emotional or a willful um, rejection of God, like a Romans 1 suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, and the Bible would basically tell us, Romans 1 would tell us, essentially there are no atheists. Everybody believes in God. Um, but they suppress him to one degree or another um, by their unrighteousness. It, it suppresses our intellectual um, capacities, even our, our knowledge, our, our grasping of, of reality. 
And so we do always need to get back to the truth of the matter. Um, does God exist? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really um, die for our sins? And so even when people have emotional or volitional objections to the existence of God, I think we always need to get back to, to reality. What is, uh, as Francis Schaeffer would say, truly true, or um, you could say really real, you know, because our intellectual capacities and, and thoughts are, are not what is um, the standard by which everything is measured and not even right all the time. You know, we differ in so many um, areas of what we believe all around the world. And so there has to be a truth. All of them can't be right. Um, and, and so you, you have to look at reality. What, what is true? And so even if people have emotional, volitional um, rejections of the existence of God and, and um, what the truth claims of Christianity, we always need to get back to that uh, truth component um, does God really exist? Did Jesus really die for our sins? Did he really rise from the dead? Um, if that's true, I must place my faith in him. And then you have presuppositional apologetics, which is the main form of apologetics that the Reformed people hold to. Um, it stems from um, really Romans 1 in the suppression of truth and unrighteousness to total depravity, which is one of the doctrines of Calvinism. Um, and it's not just our our wills and um, you know our, our sinful nature that is depraved, but but it's our it's our mind, it's our rationality. Um, we're we're unable to arrive at the truth apart from the the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so presuppositional apologetics approaches apologetics not from an evidential way, but from um, really with Scripture as the basis and um, how we all approach everything with presuppositions. And so existence of God should be a, a basic presupposition that we all have because um, you, you can't even have rationality. You, you can't have morality. There, there's so much that you can only have by existence of God. And so even atheists they, they steal from God in a sense, even rationalizing their way to certain conclusions. And so you need to presuppose the existence of God. And so that's part of presuppositional apologetics. Um, something seen lately, a, a fourth mode of apologetic approaches is called cultural apologetics. And, and I really like this. It's, it, it says essentially that you shouldn't just give a defense or reason for um, intellectual objections. You shouldn't just give reason for truth, but um, you also should for beauty and, and goodness. Um, the gospel isn't just true, but it's good and it's it's beautiful. And, um, and so a lot of the world, um, they're not taken back by the intellectual claims, but, but they don't see Christianity as even good. Um, it's, it's morally repulsive in many ways now. Um, and, and so we shouldn't just show um, the truth of the gospel. You should show its, its goodness and beauty. So this would be cultural apologetics. So there's many approaches you can take to, to give defense or a reason for the hope that is within you. And what I believe is you should just meet the person where they are, listen to them, talk with them, use any or all of these approaches to, to help them see that, that Jesus is who he said he is. 
that he died for them and, and that if they place their faith in them in, in Jesus, then they have life forevermore. Um, and, and so these are the approaches to apologetics. Um, I want to just give you a highlight of how kind of the classical approach or different evidential uh, approaches have been given. I, I cannot dive deep into these. Um, apologetics is interdisciplinary. You got science, you got history, you got uh, literature studies, you got um, so much more. It's it's interdisciplinary, and you can dive deep in each of these topics. You can spend your whole life studying, and there's you, you don't get to the bottom of the evidence, which <laughs> which helps show the validity of it that there is overwhelming amounts of of evidence. Um, if you want to dive a little deeper into these topics, you can go to my website, um, reasonforhopeministries.com. You can click on the apologetics tab. And um, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, I did a, a Zoom online Bible study, five different sessions where you dive a little deeper and you can watch those and view the, the lesson manuscripts and slides there. So if you want to dive deeper into any of these, uh, go to reasonforhopeministries.com. Come, but um, the the way I approach uh, maybe this classical approach to apologetics, you start with the existence of God. Um, there's three classic arguments for the existence of God. There's really four, um, but cosmological argument, the teleological, the moral argument. Then you have what's called the ontological argument, which just Google it. <laughs> I won't try to explain it. Um, the cosmological argument is essentially the argument for a beginning. Um, if the universe came into existence, it must have had a cause to come into existence. Um, really, until the time of Einstein, um, scientists, everyone thought that the universe was eternal. And if it's eternal, it doesn't need a cause. Um, but Einstein's theory of general relativity and then tons of scientific discoveries around that time is uh, when they came up with what they what's called the Big Bang, uh, essentially... Um, Everything came into existence at a certain point, which the Bible had long said before scientists um, ever believed that. But something can't come from nothing. And so how how does anything exist? Um, there has to be something that is eternal. Um, and if it's not the universe, something had to cause the universe to come into existence. And so the Bible has long said that is God. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the basis for the cosmological argument for the existence of God. You also have what is called the teleological argument for the existence of God. This is the argument for design. Maybe you've heard the, the phrase uh, intelligent design. Uh, this is what, what this gets at, um, is that why is the universe and life itself um, seemingly designed? Atheistic scientists will use those words. They'll say it's, it's seemingly designed because you can't say it is designed because it, if it's designed, it, it means there must be a designer. And so this is within this is the fine-tuning argument. If um, the anthropic principle, there's all of these finely tuned kind of settings to existence where if any one of them was slightly off, there would not be human life, could not be human life. Um, and, and so the, the universe is so finely tuned um, to allow life on earth, to allow human observers to be able to even observe the cosmos, let alone the design of our of our life is, is intricate and incredible. DNA, the amount of information within one strain of DNA is so complex and it, 
it, it holds information just like a, a book would. Um, if any letter is, is out, it would change who we are. And, and, and so even little messages, like if you're walking on a beach and you see scribbled in the sand, um, will you marry me? Um, you don't assume some naturalistic explanation for that. Like some crabs just crawled and, and happened to, to crawl in, in those letters to form that message. No, because there's a message there. And you, you know there's an intelligent mind that was behind it. It's the same with, with our DNA. There, there's a message within all those uh, strands of, of DNA. Um, and it's so intricate and detailed. Um, so... The, the universe and human life is so finely tuned and, and designed, so there must be a designer behind it. That, that's, in a sense, what the teleological argument gets at. And then you have the moral argument. Um, why do morals exist? Um, how can you know what is bad if you don't have some standard of, of good? So in our world, moral relativity kind of reigns supreme. Relativism of truth reigns supreme. Um, rel- moral relativity reigns supreme where uh, you do you. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. Now we see that in the Bible. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes and we see the destruction that comes from that um, because, I mean, that is the that is the atheistic evolutionary model if we're, we're honest. You know, survival of the fittest. I should do whatever I can to get ahead. But but why do we put limits on it for for humanity? Um, why can animals kill each other and, and not humans if I'm going to get ahead? Why why do we say some things are bad and some things are good if if morals are actually relative? Why did um, why are there Nazi war criminals who were just following the laws of the land at the time and uh, following Hitler's orders, but then after the war there? Um, they're they're condemned for their crimes. Um, if morals are actually relative, um, we we don't actually live like morals are relative. Um, that that's ultimately unlivable. Um, so there's a standard of of right. There's a standard of, of wrong outside of our ourselves. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a, a moral lawgiver. If you have a law, you must have a law giver. One thing I like to say. Um, I liken this to a law of speed limits, speed limit signs. Um, so a lot of people deny that there's a moral law. We don't actually live like that. And um, I, I think all of it can be answered. All of the objections to an objective moral law can be answered by thinking about speed limits. So uh, I like to say just because you don't follow the law, don't believe in the law, aren't aware of the law, disagree with the law, or everybody breaks the law, it doesn't mean the law does not Exists. So what I mean by that is a lot of people will say, um, well, I, I don't follow that law. So it, it, uh, the moral law um, or what you say is right or wrong or what the Bible says is right or wrong. Um, well, if we don't follow the speed limit, we can still get a ticket. Well, they say, well, I, I don't believe in your objective moral law. Well, if we don't believe the speed limit exists and we go over that speed limit, we can still get a ticket. They can say, well, uh, I didn't know that there is a law. It's the same with the speed limit. I, I didn't know the speed limit was was 45 and I was going 65. I can still get a ticket. I still break the law. Or I disagree with that law. You you can probably think of a, um, a speed limit where it's way slower than you think it should be, but just because you disagree with the law um, 
you can still get a ticket. Or everybody breaks the law. Nobody follows. That's an outdated moral system. That Bible, um, it's, it's outdated. Everybody breaks it. Well, if everybody speeds, they can still get a ticket. So, so none of those reasons that people give for, for there not being a moral law, um, uh, you can answer it with a speed limit. It doesn't mean the moral law doesn't exist. We can make excuses for it. We don't make excuses for good things, but, but only because of bad things. Um, and so where does that come from? That standard of, of, of good and bad or right and wrong. Um, there's a moral law written on all of our hearts, um, and, and it gives evidence to a moral law giver. So we have the cosmological, the teleological, and moral arguments um, for the existence of God. And then you move into, um, you got to give validity to the, the New Testament. Um, if you're going to give evidence of, of Christianity as reality, um, how do we know about Christianity? Well, it's through the Bible. Not just not the Old Testament, but the New Testament. The Old Testament, um, Jews believe that. Um, many Muslims believe that. But what sets Christianity apart is what is found in the New Testament. That's where we learn testimony of Jesus. That's how we learn about him, how we learn how to be saved. It's the only way we know how to be saved is through the Word of God. So we need to give reason for the validity of the New Testament. And so um, one way to do that is you, you look at the copies that exist to see if if what we have in our Bibles is accurate to what was what was written. And we have far more copies than any <laughs> any ancient doc any work of antiquity by far the the next closest is is Homer's Iliad. Um, the New Testament has some fifty eight hundred uh, Greek copies. You have about twenty thousand in other languages um, where you can look and and see where they differ. Um, and, and compare and contrast where divergences are so you can ultimately arrive at um, at the truth of, of what was originally written. We have earlier um, sources, the, the early sources, what's called John Ryland's fragment, early is undisputed. Um, it's a little fragment of the book of John. Um, we have codexes, which are whole um, collections of, of books, um, really from the 300s. Christianity was illegal until then. Um, documents were burned. It's, an, it's incredible how we have so many surviving copies that are so early, even when they were destroying so many. It just shows how important God's Word was and, and how God preserved it. Um, and then we have writings from the early church fathers from, from that 1st, 2nd, 3rd century um, writings that they're quoting Scripture. And so we can compare and contrast that even to the 5,800, the, the 20,000, all these copies we have. And, and we can arrive, we can be virtually certain that what we have is uh, what was written down. Um, and, and even while there, where there are divergences or what, what are known as variants in textual criticism, um, not a single variant affects any bit of Christian doctrine. And, and so um, we can be virtually certain of who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, what Jesus came to do, every necessary component of Christianity, um, we can be certain that that we are reading the accurate accounts of what the early apostles said about that. It, it's, it's incredible how God has preserved his word. Now, the next question, 
um, we then have to ask is, well, do those documents speak truth? Does it con- contain truth? Now we see that we have what they wrote down, but but who wrote them? Are they are they writing actual history? Are they writing truth? Well, how they determined this was in the 300-somethings. Um, you had different councils starting to gather um, to discuss these matters. What is scripture? What is not? What should be included in the canon? What should not? Now, it wasn't until the 300s. You might think that's late, but remember, Christianity was was illegal until then. And, and so you couldn't have people gathering, um, talking about these things, discussing these things until that time. And so you start seeing these councils form and, and looking at matters. And, and one of the main matters was, was what's called apostolic proximity. And so was it written by an apostle or in close proximity to an apostle? So an apostle, someone who was with Jesus, someone who saw him, someone who talked with him, someone who, who was an eyewitness to these accounts, to his teachings, to the resurrected Jesus. Was he an eyewitness to these accounts? And that's important. That's very important. Um, in a court of law, eyewitness testimony uh, is, is very strong testimony. There's been some great work done in the last couple of decades about eyewitness testimony. Richard Bauckham's book um, is, a, is a very solid one on this, this topic of scholarly work. Um, and there, there's many more showing that this was eyewitness testimony about who Jesus is and what he's done. And, and so not just do we have accurate copies, but what they are writing down is, is actual history. They wrote not with embellished and legendary uh, accounts like you uh, look up the Gospel of Peter. <laughs> this is a, a pseudepigraphal account, um, not included in the canon. Look at the the resurrection account uh, in the Gospel of Peter. It's it's exaggerated. It's there's a talking cross. There's like all, all kinds of uh, crazy large crowds. And um, whenever you're reading the Gospels, even in this this most crucial account of the resurrection of Jesus, it's it's kind of in bland and in a sense boring. Terms and it's because they were recording actual history. You read a history book and it's not in embellished uh, grand accounts. It's just telling you what actually happened, and that's what we have in the Bible. Um, and so, and it's written from eyewitness and in close proximity to eyewitnesses. And so, we have um, accurate copies and and those speak the truth. So, what we read in our New Testament, um, we can be certain contains truth, and it, it gives evidence to, and it's actually the only way to know who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. Um, what he's done, he He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And that, that we all must place our faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, um, the Bible would tell us. And so finally, you have to give an account of, of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, this is a lot of people's favorite part of Apologetics is looking at the different proofs of the resurrection or disproving different um, secular uh, theories, naturalistic theories to the resurrection. If you presuppose, so back to presuppositional apologetics, if you presuppose a way before looking at evidence, you presuppose that the supernatural is impossible, uh, you, then you then have to only come to naturalistic explanations for everything you see. You could be looking at the same evidence as people, but you would arrive at different conclusions because you um, arrive at those evidences with a presuppositional bias to it. And so you'll naturally arrive to a different conclusions. So 
Um, it is virtually certain. It's a historical bedrock. Um, look up uh, Gary Habermas, Michael Lycona. There, there's so many wonderful scholarly works on the resurrection. Um, uh, Habermas and Lycona, they say what are, what are historical bedrocks. And one of them is that, that the disciples claimed he rose from the dead. One of them is that there is an a empty tomb. Um, we even see testimony in Scripture, outside of Scripture, as to why the tomb was empty, given further evidence. Um, and so if you look at these, it is historical certainty that Jesus existed. No one denies that. Um, it historical uh, certainty that the disciples claimed he rose from the dead, that they, they uh, pursued till death, um, telling people that Jesus rose from the dead and they were, that they were eyewitnesses to these things, um, and that the, the tomb was empty it is a historical uh, certainty. So how do you arrive at these uh, conclusion? How was the tomb empty? How did they claim he appeared to them, these eyewitnesses, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to them afterwards? If you presuppose that the supernatural can't happen, you then have to come to a natural conclusion to these things. And so you see some pretty wild theories as to how um, we can know the resurrection is true. There's something called the swoon theory. Maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just was so near to the point of death that, that everyone thought he was dead. Um, but there, there's a lot of holes in this theory. Um, I mean, Roman executioners were professional killers. And there's a little verse that, that Pilate tells uh, one of the, the guards to go check him to actually be sure he's dead. And then comes back to him. He said he was um, now Jesus was put in a tomb, uh, wrapped with linen. Um, somehow th- those wrapped him wouldn't have known he was actually breathing, had a little bit of a heartbeat, which you would have to have to be alive, even a little bit. He was placed in a tomb for three three days. Um, no food or water. I mean, first thing you do whenever you go to a hospital, if you have a wound, let alone bleeding out to the point where everyone thinks you're dead like Jesus, you get an IV because you need fluids. And I mean, Jesus had none of this. And he would have had to roll the stone away, get past the guards. And everyone uh, would have tried to help him, all his followers, instead of worship, worshiping him as as resurrected gloriously. And so there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of holes in, in, in the theory. There's a what's called a hallucination theory. Maybe the disciples were so distraught and uh, these followers of Jesus that that they thought they saw him alive, but he really wasn't. They were just hallucinating. Um, now, first off, people don't share hallucinations just like people don't share dreams. Jesus, Jesus appeared to many different people during a 40-day period over different places, different times, and um, they all say the same thing, that they saw Jesus alive. Jesus had people touch him. You see that with Thomas. Jesus ate with people. Um, these are not like hallucinations. Um, so that, again, this is another far-fetched naturalistic theory. But if you say the supernatural can't happen, God doesn't exist, supernatural doesn't happen, you have to come to a natural conclusion to these historical realities, these historical bedrocks. And so there are some pretty far-fetched ones. Um, one you see in the Bible, the stolen body theory, claims that the disciples stole Jesus' body. Um, that's what you see recorded in, in Scripture. Um, you see that outside of Scripture as well, that that was circulated. Um, now that does give evidence that the tomb was actually empty because the, the authorities are, are giving a, a reason why the tomb was empty. So it, it, in a sense, it gives further evidence to the resurrection. But 
the disciples, his followers, had had no motive or ability to to do this. Why why would they steal his body? Um, they all ended up giving their life uh, for this. People don't give their life for for a lie. Uh, one person at least would have recanted, um, but every single one of them ended up giving their life for their belief in Jesus and their proclamation of who he is and what he's done. Um, not one of them recanted this. They had no motive to, to make up something like this, to lie about it, to steal the body, and then give their life for it. Um, they didn't have ability either. These were normal people, fishermen. Um, you know, they, they would have had to overpower uh, trained Roman guards. And um, it, it's, it's a far-fetched theory. Um, but again, when you come to evidence with biased presuppositions, you like anti-supernaturalism, you have to come to a naturalistic explanation um, to how these historical certainties that Jesus existed, uh, the disciples claimed they saw him alive, that he rose from the dead, that the tomb was was empty. You have to come to natural conclusions, but but they all fall woefully short. And, and the, the reason is because reality is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that God exists, the supernatural is possible. If God exists, miracles are possible. Um, and Jesus really rose from the dead. And so as 1 Corinthians 15 says, and it gives evidence to this. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, we see a little thing that Paul says. It was handed down to me. I'm giving to you um, of first importance. That, and he talks about all these people Christ uh, appeared to. This is our earliest account in uh, the New Testament that we have, this is this uh, an oral testimony that was passed down of, of how Jesus appeared to all these people. Um, he then goes on shortly after that to say, if, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, um, our faith is useless, it's futile, and we are still in our sins. But indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so for everyone who believes, for everyone who, who places their faith in Jesus, who is God, who did die, who did rise from the dead. Um, their faith isn't useless. Um, their sins are forgiven. They're not stealing their sins. They're, they're forgiven, they're free, and they're given life now and forevermore. And, and so this is our hope. This is, this is where our hope lies. Um, God came for us. Um, he, he took on flesh. He lived a perfect life that we can't live. He died a horrible, excruciating, agonizing, shameful death that, that you and I deserve. And he rose victoriously and gloriously from the dead. And all who place their faith in him are given the life that he has purchased for them now and forevermore. There's hope in that. That is the good news. And that is reality. That is really real. That is truly true. Um, and there are so many evidences to, to give credibility, validity, coherence, um, to show that, that this really is um, reality. And, and so this is some of the evidences you see um, expressed, and you can dive down deep into each one of these things uh, we talked about. Um, there's so many evidences to show that God exists, that the Bible is true, um, that Jesus rose from the dead, that God is good. We didn't even discuss the problem of evil in here, which is my um, topic of, of study specifically within um, apologetics of, 
of why do bad things happen, um, but there's evidences to show that that God um, has good in mind through the evils that exist, and one of them is um, His sacrifice. He He died for us. Um, that we can know the greatest of loves, no greater love than this, that, that Christ laid down his life for us. And so even with the evils that exist, we see this infinite goodness of, of the incarnation and atonement of Jesus that is for you and for me and for all eternity. It's incredible. God is, God is so good, um, and, and it can be defended, and it should. And so hopefully you can dive deeper into studying apologetics you can dive deeper through through books such as um, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by uh, Norm Geisler and Frank, Frank Turek, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by um, Josh and Sean McDowell. There's many other popular level books where you can get a broad view of this, but then within each topic, there's specific books that dive deep into with within each topic of intelligent design or arguments for the existence of God. Uh, for miracles, for um, the reliability of the New Testament, for the resurrection. Um, it's, there's an endless supply of study. You can always go deeper. The well never runs dry of evidences for Christianity and, and giving a defense of the faith. And so I hope you'll start that journey of knowing why you believe what you believe um, and giving reason for that, defending it to the world that needs to know that, that God loves them and that he gave his life for them, and that they can have life forever. And so this is apologetics, a a defense of the faith. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know that I had a lot of fun listening to it and kind of relearning some of the things that I've learned before through Jacob and just getting a glimpse into the bigger picture of why we learn about apologetics in the first place. So a a special thank you is in order to Jacob. Jacob, thank you so much for willingly preparing for and speaking on my podcast. I'm so grateful for the impact you're making in the world and for your desire to know God deeper through apologetics. For all inquiries, whether to discuss a podcast episode more fully, to request or suggest specific topics for me to cover, or anything else, you can email me at humblyspoken.pod at gmail.com. You can also find show notes from each episode, blog posts, and other resources on my blog at www.humblyspoken.wordpress.com. You can follow the Humbly Spoken podcast Instagram page at humblyspoken underscore pod. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to the Humbly Spoken Podcast.